It's Wednesday, April the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today, we want to look at two very different upcoming elections. On Sunday, the French people go to the polls for the second time in a fortnight to decide whether Emmanuel Macron or Marine Le Pen will be the country's president for the next five years. And in Northern Ireland, voters are going to elect the 90 members of the Stormont Assembly on May the 5th. I'll be joined a little later by Lara Marlowe with the latest from Paris. But first, our Northern editor, Freya McClements, is here. Hi, Freya. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hugh. What do the polls say about the state of the parties right now? Well, at the minute, as it stands in terms of the polls, there's a big gap between Sinn Féin and the DUP. Now, this fluctuates depending on the poll, as always happens with polls. The most recent numbers that we had were a study which came out two weeks ago, just over two weeks ago, um, from the Institute of Irish Studies at the University of Liverpool and the Irish News. And they had Sinn Féin on that poll with a clear lead, uh, 27% of the first preference vote compared to the DUP on 20. But what's really interesting is if we look at the trend in terms of the polling, I mean, parties would say one poll can be wrong, absolutely. But John Tong, the, the politics professor at the University of Liverpool, he's put together a really interesting poll of polls, if you like, which look at the figures from October until now. And uh, what's really interesting is that that gap really hasn't changed, doesn't seem to have changed. So averaging out the last six polls, some of those from, from the Irish News, University of Liverpool, some from, from Lucid Talk and the Belfast Telegraph, but they, they have Sinn Féin on 25%, DUP on, on 19 Alliance on 16 UUP on 14 the STLP on 11 and then traditional unionist voice TUV on 8. And that's roughly where it appears the parties are going to come in. Sinn Féin have this clear lead in the polls. It's a consistent lead. The DUP substantially below them in the polls. But again, there, there are nuances on that which we'll get into. And then Alliance very much as the third party there in and around 15, 16%. And what's also interesting, just to bring in some, some other figures, and we did a really useful graph on, on this in Saturday's paper. If you look at, again, at these longer term trends, if you look at how the parties have performed in PR elections since 2016. So if you take out the Westminster elections, which are first past the post, which make them a very different beast. If you look at just the trend of how these graphs have gone, the DUP, since 2016, the DUP vote share has gone down. Sinn Féin has gone up to the point where they, they, they were virtually equal at the 2017 Assembly election. And they're roughly again at that same point in, in the 2019 European elections, which was the last vote on, under this system. And you have alliance again over that time from some 2016. They have gone up to the point where they where they are the third largest party. So these aren't, you know, we're not just talking about one one poll. We're talking about pretty long term trends here. So the, the, I mean, there's many interesting things in that, and this is a very interesting election. I'm conscious of the fact that many of our listeners are familiar with the PRSTV system because it operates for the Dáil as well as uh, as well as for the Northern Ireland Assembly. Although it operates and it effectively ends up with a different sort of election because Northern Ireland's elections are very particular sort of elections because of the the nature of of that community. But looking at the numbers which you've just described there. The really dramatic change, it seems to me, is not so much a surge in the Sinn Féin vote, but a splintering in unionism 
a defection to the right to the traditional unionist voice in the DUP. And as you mentioned there, the really significant growth of the Alliance Party. Those are the two big trends, aren't they, over the last, since the last Assembly election? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we saw in the 2017 Assembly election, which was the last time we had the, the elections to the Assembly, I mean, Sinn Féin did really well, you know, and, and some commentators would say, I mean, Sinn Féin are almost pretty much maxed out in terms of where they can go in terms of seats. But the trends, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, we, we've seen the splintering of the unionist vote and the the, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and the the many outworkings of that and of Brexit have, have played their part in, in that as well. But we've also seen the rise of, of alliance. And what has happened is that to broadly generalise, the more moderate uh, liberal unionist voter has moved away from the DUP the largest party of unionism because they don't feel that they represent them anymore and they have tended to move to, to the Alliance Party. Uh, and one of the really interesting things that I think about about these trends in terms of where we're going is about that middle ground because we, we have roughly in the Northern Ireland Assembly, parties are asked to designate themselves as either unionist, nationalist or, or other. Um, and there's a roughly 20% um, now that are sitting at, at other the Alliance Party, but also the Greens and also people before profit who who don't designate. Um, and and when, when we get into some of the big constitutional questions that, that that motivate voting in Northern Ireland, and we talk about border polls, and there's been that language that has been in this this election as well. But if you look at the fact that there's a middle ground of twenty percent that that does not take a position on that, and you're asking the question about is there going to be a border poll? If there was one, would there be a vote for United Ireland? You know, where those questions are going to be answered is not in, you know, your Sinn Féin voter who will will vote for United Ireland every day day of the week. It's not going to be found in your TUV voter who will never vote for it, you know, come hell or high water. It's going to be in that middle 20% and, and where they decide to go. So that's why I think they're the most interesting. And I'd like to discuss a little bit more a little bit later about what might happen after the election. But just in the run up to the election, I mean, PRS TV tends to end up with a fairly representative result in the number of uh, the number of seats which which are won by each party. But it is possible to make strategic errors, as we saw in in the in the Dáil election of 2020, when Sinn Féin didn't run enough candidates to uh, to maximise its seats. You make a very interesting point in your piece on Saturday, which you mentioned about the fact that the DUP is essentially following a defensive strategy and might actually be able to hold on to more seats than the share of the vote might indicate. Yeah, and you know this this is one of the things again about this this system. It usually does end up pretty representative of where where the population are, and this is the thing when when you look at the polls is that if you take those numbers at face value there's clear blue water between Sinn Féin and the DUP which you would think would then translate into the DUP are going to lose lots of seats and Sinn Féin are going to do much better and will, will return far more MLAs but the point is that the DUP have a cushion in a lot of seats and, and a good example of this is, is South Antrim. So in South Antrim as it stands the DUP has two MLAs Last time around, they ran three candidates and their third candidate wasn't elected, but was the runner up. So this is the cushion. This time around, they're only running two candidates. So you would imagine that they will probably get those two candidates elected reasonably comfortably. Although somebody I was just talking to this morning said, well, they're not too sure. One of them might be in trouble. Who knows? There's always all of this speculation um, around election time. But when, when you look at look at the, the figures, the DUP are running a reduced number of candidates this time. They're only running 30 candidates. And when you think that last time around they elected 28 
MLAs, you know, every party, you're talking about tactics, every party knows that you're not going to get every single candidate that you run elected. So that in itself is, it's a reflection of where, of where the party is at. Yeah, and one of the things that then that, that strikes me about that is that there's there's a lot of talk about the fact that if Sinn Fein is the largest uh, party under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, as amended by the St Andrews Agreement, some years uh, some years after that, as the last, last party they hold, they will then hold the first minister position in a new assembly. Now that is largely titular. It doesn't, you know, for our listeners who aren't aware of the complexities of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the Deputy uh, First Minister and the First Minister are essentially parallel positions side by side in the in the power sharing arrangement. But that has kind of been held out as a bogeyman for the, for the unionist community. And I wonder what the chances are either of that fear driving people back towards the DUP in the final weeks of the election, or indeed, because it's a, um, it's a proportional um, representation system, you know, the uh, the TUV, those votes might come back to the DUP in the end and might save some of their seats because we hear about the TUV that it's a very much a one-man band, that, uh, that its leader is very popular, but its candidates are less strong. So that the unionist vote might coalesce and hold on to those seats in the end. Yeah, um, a lot to unpick there. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, First Minister and Deputy First Minister, practically there's absolutely no difference. You can't have one without the other, which is why Earlier this year, when the, the DUP First Minister resigned, Michelle O'Neill, um, Sinn Féin Deputy First Minister, was no longer no longer sat either. So, I mean, they can't, they can't, they can't sign a piece of paper. They can't really do anything um, one without the other. So, on the one hand, the argument goes, this is, this is all completely irrelevant because we've had the DUP and Sinn Féin jointly governing Northern Ireland together for, for many years. Um, but symbolically, this is absolutely seismic. And, and again, I made this point in, in, in the piece on, on Saturday that, that this is why, that the symbolism of this is why this election is so significant because you have never, in, in the history of Northern Ireland, there has never been a nationalist at the head of government. Um, so from from a unionist point of view, I should say some unionists, because I, unionism is a is a multifaceted and many many uh, many spectred thing. I don't even know if that's a word, but you know what I'm getting at. Well, it is. It is now. Yeah, it is. It, it is now. We've decided it. We've decided it's a word. Um, but I mean, I mean, th- this is the potential to be absolutely seismic because it's talking about a, a, a complete shift. Um, in 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 that unionist worldview, if you like, where unionism has been. You know the, the the dominant political force in Northern Ireland and the government of Northern Ireland for for a hundred years, and and that 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 was it was the way it was set up, and and that was the way it was. So this is this is is fundamental, and the other question, I mean. So we're talking about this is about the past, obviously, and I'm thinking of when you go into Stormont and there's Carson's statue and all of this this symbolism as you go in. This is this is fundamental, but it's not just about the past. It's also about the future because it's about these big questions about constitutional issues, and it's it's about a border poll. And, and we've we've seen this in the course of this campaign. It was always going to be part of the campaign because it is always part of every campaign in Northern Ireland is about these constitutional questions. But I mean, we've seen this particularly in recent weeks from from the DUP ratcheting up, and this this sort of language. I mean, Jeffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader, saying things like, you know, we have to avoid a Sinn Féin first minister because this will allow Michelle O'Neill and Mary Lou Macdonald to push forward with their divisive plans for a border poll um, and, and making the argument essentially that, you know, allowing Sinn Féin to get in and a Sinn Féin first minister then is is the next step on the road to United Ireland. 
Although whether that's true is probably uh, another matter. And of course, there was an opinion poll recently which didn't show, I'd have to say, particularly strong uh, support for, for Irish unity in, in among the current electorate. Indeed. And I mean, this is, I suppose, the flip side of this, that regardless of what the rhetoric might say, a border poll you know, does not appear to be on the cards anytime soon. I mean, it, it, it's certainly not imminent. And again, to, to, to go back to these poll results, um, this is again the Institute of Irish Studies and the Irish News. Um, only 30% would vote for United Ireland tomorrow and 33.4% in 10 to 15 years' time. So it doesn't even show, it's it, it's not even as if there's anywhere near a majority for this sometime in, in, in the future. So we're very much talking, and it's important to be clear in that, we're very much talking, this is a hypothetical border poll. But again, in terms of, of the rhetoric of this and how this affects the, the election, um, I mean, and again, unionist voters will be familiar with the concept that there is always in such circumstances, there is the call to unionist unity. We've seen that. It's that unionists have to vote together in order to keep out uh, the Sinn Féin candidate in order to avoid precisely, as you said, the bogeyman of the Sinn Féin first minister. And this is, I mean, for all the internal wrangling within unionism, for all the divisions there, for all the problems, and we haven't even, even gone into this, but this is what it, it will come down to for many people when they walk into that polling booth on, on the 5th of May. Um, it's about do we want to make sure we get the unionist candidate elected here or not? And a really good example of this is in is in Foyle, which is an overwhelmingly nationalist constituency. There's one unionist um, MLA at the moment, Gary Middleton of 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 the DUP. Uh, there, there's roughly one unionist quota. Um, very good UUP candidate, Ryan McCready, who left the DUP, went to the UUP. He, he's a veteran, he's a former soldier, he's, he's articulate, you know, well known as, as a councillor, really good challenger. But the question that for all of that, the question that unionist voters in FOIL will be asking themselves when they go into the polling booth is, if I vote for somebody else, other than the incumbent, will I split the vote and will we end up with, with, with five nationalists? And you can actually see that on one of the main roads as you drive into the city centre. There's a big poster uh, of Gary Middleton and, it's, and it, it says, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something along the lines of, you know, vote DUP to keep a unionist voice in, in, in foil. So that's what it will come down to. Worth also throwing into this the point about the, the TUV. You're absolutely right. Really strong leader, um, Jim Allister, um, he he is the party, effectively. A lot more TUV candidates this time. But once those candidates are limited, most of them aren't terribly well known, you would imagine um, that when, when they are eliminated, those votes will then potentially go to the DUP. And the, the other point in all of this, we're talking about um, the question of a, a, a Sinn Féin first minister. We talked about how this, the first and deputy first ministers are, are, are joint. The other point about all of this is that as it stands, if Sinn Féin, as the polls predict, and we're not saying that this is a, a done deal, but as the polls predict, um, Sinn Féin are the largest party and, and there is then the potential for a Sinn Féin first minister. Um, as it stands, the DUP leader, Geoffrey Donaldson, has been very clear that that the DUP are not going to go back into the executive um, unless there's a satisfactory agreement on, on, on the protocol. So in all likelihood, what's going to happen after the election is that there will not be an assembly anyway, there will not be an executive, there will not be a first or deputy first minister, there, there will be stasis, there will be a period of negotiations. So you may have a Sinn Féin first minister nominally in that symbolic position, but 
again, it really is it really is symbolism. And finally, Freya, I mean, that's I think why you framed the article very much as this being a choice for a generation in in Northern Ireland, because I mean, it should be said that the the, the dispensation for governing Northern Ireland over the last twenty years has been switched off as often as it's been switched on. The recurring crises and um, the the assembly has been suspended. I think nearly for as long as it it has been active, and there's a kind of a breaking point. It seems to me, and I think you indicate in your piece, um, looming here, the rise of the others as represented by Alliance and other parties. Those parties are not particularly in love with the uh, with 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 the arrangements as they're structured um, at the moment. There's a perhaps a growing feeling that that these particular structures have outlived their usefulness, and it's time to move to to a different system that more accurately reflects the realities of what Northern Ireland is now in the third decade of the 21st century. Is that fair to say? Is there an impetus in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, primarily coming from from Alliance, but I mean, other parties, I mean, I'm, I'm think, thinking of, of the STLP, um, you know, also have made the point that, you know, that, that this isn't working. And when you look at it just in, in terms of how long we've actually had you know, a full sitting executive and assembly. If you think of that, we've just finished a five-year mandate. For three of those five years, there was no assembly at all. It got back up and running um, with, you know, huge effort from the British and Irish governments. Um, in January 2020, you went straight into COVID. And then in February this year, then the the first minister resigned. So we, we've had this sort of zombie executive, um, if you like, since since February. So, you know, e- even just looking at, at the figure, you know, th- this this clearly, this system clearly isn't working. And, and Brian Rowan in, in the piece on Saturday makes this point about there's only so many times you can break something before you just have to admit that it's broken and you need to go on and do something new. Um, and Alliance, and we, we talked about the, this this um, middle ground that, that designates as other, that doesn't designate as nationalist or unionist. The way that Stormont is set up um, it is based on power sharing between nationalist and, and unionist. And, and they argue that this excludes those who do not designate in in that way, and again, w- one of the really interesting things about about this election is that if Alliance do well, I mean, I think most people are of the view that they're certainly going to gain seats. The question is, is how many? Um, but th- the better they do, the the more that gives weight to that argument that this system is just a it doesn't work, but also it, it it's unrepresentative of an awful lot of voters, and therefore needs to be changed. Now, w- when we, we we start talking about reworking um th- these arrangements you know it, it, it i think inevitably one of the problems with a system that that doesn't work on a political system that that isn't working is that people do start to look to alternatives and you know reworking this is only one of the alter- alternatives you know there are others who would look to direct rule or some sort of joint authority there are those who would say that a, a united ireland is 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 the way to solve this and I, and i i think that increasingly more and more the the argument is starting to go beyond what is there at the moment precisely where that goes i, I don't know because that can one of the things about politics in northern ireland is that once you start to unpick things they can suddenly unravel very quickly and you find yourself in a place that you don't necessarily want to be and you have no way back uh, but th- th- this is this is what can happen, and and I suppose Stormont and the power sharing structures that we have at the minute they were the compromise, you know, they were the the, the compromise that came out of the Good Friday Agreement, and and then St Andrews, that was how things were pieced back together, if you like, after the troubles, and I think there there's a conversation 
being had, but also which needs to be had about, right, well, we're at the point, it'll be 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement next year. It's about where do we go from here? Freya, thanks very much for joining us today. And we're moving now to Paris. We're joined by our Paris correspondent, Lara Marlowe. Lara, only four days to go to the French presidential election. We're speaking just a few hours before the crucial TV debate on Wednesday evening. What is the state of play between Macron and Le Pen as we speak? Both of them are holed up. Uh, Macron in the Elysee, Le Pen in her home in Saint-Cloud, uh, practicing uh, cramming for tonight's debate. Macron has moved way ahead of Le Pen in the polls. The most recent polls show him at 56% to her 44%. So it looks like he should win unless the pollsters have really got it completely wrong. Uh, The question is really by how great a margin he will win. Uh, The debate tonight could conceivably be a game changer if one of them really achieves a knockout. Uh, I don't really expect that, but um, they're both hoping to compensate for their shortcomings in the debate. She needs to appear to be a stateswoman. She needs credibility internationally. She needs to convince people that they would not be embarrassed to have this woman representing them, that she would not uh, take them down a path of leaving the EU and allying France with Russia and and Viktor Orban, which is pretty much what she wants to do. Uh, Macron seems needs to appear to be human, to, to, to care about uh, the people he governs. And uh, that, that's what he will try very hard not to be aggressive, not to be a know-it-all. Uh, Marine Le Pen will try to not get confused, as she did five years ago, uh, and, and just to be a, a credible person, a credible president for France. These debates are incredibly important in France, Lara, aren't they? I mean, the last one five years ago saw Macron really crush Le Pen and dispatch her forever, really, essentially. It was a disastrous performance by her. Presumably, she's been practising very hard to try and turn in a better performance this time. Yes, uh, these debates have happened in every presidential election since 1974. Uh, so it's it's a very long tradition uh, the last one in 2017, there were 16.5 million people watching. Uh, Le Pen actually told me, and I did a group interview with her a year or two ago, and she said she was suffering from an ophthalmic migraine, which apparently is, is excruciating. And certainly she did not appear to be her usual self. But as you said, she was a mess. Just a few minutes into the debate, she... Um, she couldn't. She confused the SFR phone company and the Alstom uh, big industry company. And and Macron just said to her, "Listen, you know, um, SFR is telephones. Alstom is industrial equipment." And she was humiliated. And she actually said later that she she never really got back into the debate after that. But she was shown. She had a big pile of of files, uh, file folders on the table in front of her. And when Macron was talking, she could be seen rifling through her files in, in a panic because she didn't know what she was talking about. And she really gave the impression of just total incompetence. And that is obviously one of the big arguments against her because she's never been in government. She's never held a minister's portfolio. And people say, well, how can this woman who's only been a member of the European Parliament and a, and a deputy in the National Assembly, how could she purport to rule France? 
she, she, of course, has an answer to that. She has an answer to everything. And her answer to that is that Macron uh, had virtually no experience of government either, although he had been an economy minister. So, yes, the debate is important. Um, I, I heard this morning from a person who, one of the interviewers in the last debate, that Macron was actually disappointed in the debate as well because he didn't have a punchline. Presidents like to have... Uh, uh, the, the, the most famous one was um, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing saying to François Mitterrand uh, way back in the, in the 70s, uh, vous n'avez pas le monopole du cœur, you don't have a monopoly on the heart, on feeling, on, on social policy. And that, that was like, it, it just really summed it up, you know, this, this president telling the other guy, you know, you, you don't own social policy. Um, the one François Mitterrand's against Sarkozy was moi président when I am president when I am president and he just kept repeating this over and over and over and it, it made an impression it was remembered Macron didn't have a punchline last time so I'm sure he's go- going to have one tonight that will be his legacy to the to the television archives we will definitely keep an eye out for that now the these two candidates won barely or just under 50% of the vote in the first round of the election uh, a week and a half ago. And a lot of attention after that election was focused on the candidate who came third, just barely, just behind Marine Le Pen, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the, left, uh, the left-wing candidate, and where his votes would go. And I suppose almost a sense of him as being a kingmaker. Now, he has told his supporters not to vote for Le Pen, but he hasn't told them to vote for Macron. Do we have a sense of where those Mélenchon voters are going to go? Yes, we do. Um, La France Insoumise, France Unbowed, his party had an internal poll of about, uh, I think it's 310,000 members. And the results came in a day or two ago. Uh, 37.65% of them said they would cast blank ballots. 33.4% said they would vote for Macron. 29% 29% said they would abstain. Now, this is just the card-carrying members of the party. It is not the 7.7 million people who voted for Mélenchon. And the political scientist estimate that as much as a quarter of Mélenchon's voters could vote for Marine Le Pen because the, the extremes sort of meet at, at, at one point and they do have certain policies in common, like earlier retirement, big social spending, and, and, and so on and so forth. So some of his voters will, will vote for Le Pen. They're not going to listen to Mélenchon, but probably not enough of them to push her over the line and to, to, make, to give her a win. Presumably, given that essentially Mélenchon successfully became the candidate of the entire left, including previous socialist voters, presumably some of those voters are more likely to be able to hold their nose and vote for Macron. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, they will join the, the, the third of Mélenchon's party members who say they will vote for Macron. Uh, I remember when Chirac was against Jean-Marie Le Pen in 2002, uh, a lot of voters went to the polls with clothes pegs on their noses or wearing you know, rubber cleaning gloves. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see some more of that on Sunday because people will want to signify that they are not voting for Macron out of with a happy heart. A lot of people really dislike him, but they will vote for him because they see him as the lesser of evils. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the main characteristics of this election 
is that people are voting against someone. In fact, Le, Le Pen has been saying, you know, um, bar the path for Macron. That has always been the cry of, you know, reasonable, moderate France is you must bar the path of, of the extreme right. And so she's turning that argument around, vote against Macron. He's saying vote against the far right. So everyone is voting against something People are not voting with joy for something. On Tuesday night, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon held a press conference and he asked people to vote for, for his party in the legislative elections in June. And in view of his very high score in the first round, almost 22%, I think it's likely that uh, France Unbound and Mélenchon will perform very well in June. He said, elect me as prime minister. So this is his gamble now, building on that support, that unexpected level of support he had and his new de facto status as the leader of the French left. He wants to do so well in the legislative elections that the next president, whether it's Macron or Le Pen, will be forced to make him prime minister and have a cohabitation government with him. And when it comes to mobilising voters against Le Pen... Um, I noted that in before the first round, a lot of commentators suggested that the the rise of Eric Zemmour, who is even further to the right in many ways than Le Pen was, in a funny kind of a way, legitimized Le Pen or respectabilized her. Uh, that that views which had been sort of outside the pale became more acceptable because Zemmour was even more extreme. Presumably, with Zemmour out of the game. That means it, it gives a chance to focus again on some of the more extreme policies of Le Pen. Yes, and I, I've seen, I've sensed that very much since the first round on April 10th. Uh, during, when she was campaigning for the first round, Le Pen had sort of restyled herself as a maternal, friendly, chummy, uh, you know, down-to-earth kind of person, grassroots, and she went round to every little village and, and department in France. And, and, and she came across as quite likable. Uh, and, and yet, after the, the first round was over, actually, I saw the exact same phenomenon with her father in 2002. She suddenly gets nasty. And a part of that is that during the first round campaign, she just talked about cost of living. She made that her number one issue and of course, all French people are open to the idea that they're spending too much money on, on essential products and so on and so forth. And she was offering big cuts on VAT and, and, and so on and so forth. And yet after, after uh, Eric Zemmour was out of the race, suddenly all of that rhetoric about Islam and immigrants, which he had monopolized, comes back to Marine Le Pen. And that's where you see her true nature. It, it, which is the exclusion of others, the xenophobia, uh, Islamophobia. There, there's been a lot of talk the last week or so about the Muslim headscarf, and she wanted to ban it everywhere, which was also what Zamor wanted. And she was challenged in a market by a, an old lady who was wearing just the little white kerchief over her head, and she said, the, this old woman who was of North African Arab origin said, uh, it's just a sign of a grandmother. And so Le Pen said, no, no, it's a uniform for Islamism. And then there was a debate about, well, should we let old ladies wear the headscarf? And, and they even at one point, some of the officials from Le Pen's party, the Rassemblement National said, 
well, perhaps we will let elderly women wear it. And then there was the, the question is, what age are you allowed to wear the headscarf? And it, it got really, really absurd. And the end result of this, this much toing and froing uh, was that the, uh, Le Pen now says it is still her objective to ban the headscarf everywhere, but it is no longer a priority. Uh, but she did not come well. I thought actually the, the real gotcha moment of the debate over the headscarf was when uh, the interior minister said in a debate with the Le Pen's right-hand man um, that uh, Latifa Benziatin, who is the mother of a Muslim French soldier who was murdered by Mohammed Mera, a, a jihadist, Islamist, fanatic, whatever you want to call him, in 2012, his mother, who campaigns against Islamism, uh, wears the headscarf. And he said, her son was torn from her. Do you want to tear the headscarf off her head? So if if, if the polls are correct and, and Macron wins for, let's say, by about 10%, that will be a comfortable win, but it will be far less than the landslide of five years ago. And it seems to indicate overall a further shift to the to the right or the hard right in the French political landscape. I look at something like the Great Replacement Theory, which is a racist conspiracist theory about emigration and globalism with anti-Semitic undertones, it should be said as well. It's it's an incredibly fringe notion in, in most Western democracies. But it's it's a subject of of kind of civilized debate in France that it doesn't seem to be in other countries to me. Even you know, it's, I've even seen it mentioned by some of the Gaullist candidates. Is that does that reflect something quite deep that's happening in France? Well, it, it reflects the fact that France has more Muslims than any other country in Europe. Um, in, in part, there's they estimate at least six million. I think it's probably more uh, because because of its colonial past. Uh, yes, Marine Le Pen believes it. Uh, Eric Zemmour believes it. I mean, basically, the, the idea is that there is a conspiracy to replace the white Christian population with Arab and African Muslims. And they really they really believe this. Uh, and there are and you're right, the sort of far right fringe of Les Républicains, which is the mainstream conservative party, also believe this. And and they will say to you, well, go to Saint-Denis, go to northeastern Paris, you'll see more Africans and Arabs than you will white French people, which is true, but it, it's not, they're not spread equally over the over the, the geography of France. And it's not a conspiracy to, to replace the population. Uh, as they say, you remember the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, was committed by, uh, uh, I believe he was Australian, and he believed in the Great Replacement Theory. Uh, he, he quoted this theory. So uh, it is outside France as well. Uh, I've heard people in America talk about uh, a, a similar theory, um, also believe that there, there's a conspiracy to basically drive out Christian white people, drive them to extinction and replace them with, with ethnic minorities and Muslims. So I suppose the other question that perhaps gets lost a little bit, the focus and the fear of the rise of um, of, of Le Pen and the hard right in France is, is Macron and Macronism. And what does that mean if he's the likely winner, which he seems to be? What does Macron stand for? Has it changed over his five years in power? And what's it likely to mean over the next five years should he win? That's part of the difficulty, Hugh, because Macron's slogan, you remember, was en même temps. 
at the same time. So he's neither left nor right. He's both at the same time. He's he's uh, liberal in economics, but he also has a social conscience and likes social policies and so on. I think the one thing that Macron really does stand for is uh, adherence, loyalty, enthusiasm for the European Union, for European integration. That is one issue on which he has always been consistent. He's never he, he's never waffled or, or, or backed down. Aside from that, it is quite difficult to know exactly what he does stand for. And this is one reason people don't really like him. I call it fusion politics. Um, there, there, there was a quote from him in an interview with Le Figaro where he said he was a, an Orleanist, a Bonapartiste. Uh, he was, uh, I mean, I, I can't remember, you had to have a doctorate in history to even understand the quote. And basically, he wants to bring all these trends together and mix them all up and represent everything and everyone. Uh, he's also a very uh, verbose and often when he gives press conferences or interviews, he gets so far into the weeds that any any human being has difficulty following him. He goes into the minutest details of uh, measures he's proposing. And yet, overall, you, you, you come away from it saying, so what is his vision? What, what, what is he getting at? What does he mean? What does he want? Uh, the vision thing, I think it was uh, one of the Bushes used to call it. Um, sometimes that's lacking. It's not for the European Union, but it is for for France. Uh, and I think that's in part because France is such a fragmented, divided country and he wants to keep everyone happy. And so therefore, this strange mixture of the intellectual and the technocrat, I mean, there there were social measures he was proposing and the most controversial by far and he seems to be rowing back on it a little bit this week, is changes to uh, to pensions, which is a subject very dear, not surprisingly, to many French people's hearts. Uh, yes, he wanted, you would think it was kind of a suicidal proposal in a presidential election campaign to say, I'm going to make you le- work longer and harder. Uh, but that's what he did. He wanted to raise the retirement age to 65. Uh, and everywhere he's gone, people have been... Uh, yelling at him about this. Uh, It's raised huge opposition. He said he was going to do it this coming autumn. Uh, Because of of the outcry, he said, well, look, maybe it will be 64. And then he said, well, maybe we can have a referendum on it or we'll have a a citizens convention and we'll all talk about it, which is seen as as really a a big climb down on uh, retirement. Uh, He also said he would raise the the minimum pension to 1,100 a month. Uh, and that he would have special conditions for people who in difficult jobs. Uh, So I I don't think it's going to happen. I think if Macron tried to uh, establish age 65 pension in the autumn, we would have a terrible, terrible time. The country would grind to a halt. There will be strikes everywhere and people in the streets and it would be the gilet jaune all over again. And I think he knows that too. I don't think he's going to do it. And also he is, in a way, he's sort of tipping his hat to the left over the last few days, isn't he? Both with this and also with some 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 suggested moves on the environmental front too. Very much so, yeah. And and I'm sure he will talk about the environment a lot this evening. He actually admits that he hasn't done very well so far. Uh, he's had four environment ministers in five years. 
the environment groups give him basically a zero uh, for performance on combating global warming, although he had this big one planet summit, a very lavish thing with boat people uh, going on boats down the Seine and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but he says he will uh, double the speed at which France is reducing its carbon emissions. Uh, he will make France the first country in the world to abandon completely petrol, gas and uh, um, coal uh, as energy sources. Um, you know, will he? I, I don't know. Uh, good question. But he certainly comes out of on that issue much better than Le Pen, who, who talks about so-called global warming. I mean, she really is a, a climate denier. Uh, both of them want to increase the number of nuclear reactors uh, by, by a huge number. Um, I think it's uh, 20 for Le Pen and it's 12 for Macron, you know, so they want to build, really increase the nuclear power plants. And they say that uh, nuclear power plants emit no um, greenhouse gases, uh, which is true, but <laughs> they, they can have, we saw a three mile island, Chernobyl, uh, Fukushima, and they're not talking about that that risk. Oh, Marine Le Pen, by the way, wants to dismantle all of the wind turbines in France, and there are, there are thousands of them. And she wants to stop all solar energy and wind energy, all renewable. She she calls so called renewable energy. Uh, she she wants to abandon. So he definitely comes out ahead on on the environmental questions. Lastly, I, I note that a number of key uh, Macron allies have been sort of trying to whip up the troops a little bit over the last couple of days, saying you can't take this for granted. There's a danger of apathy. And just because the polls are going a certain way, if people don't show up, it could go the other way. And certainly there were there's lots of commentary in the English speaking world over the last 10 days, a fear that this was going to be the next Brexit or Trump election or or whatever. Given what you describe, which is, you know, a nation of people holding their noses as they go to the polls to vote against people rather than for people and widespread apathy um, and people choosing to spoil their ballots, is there any prospect of a shock or a surprise on Sunday? Uh, I hope not, uh, but I'm not. I'm, I'm holding off on holiday plans until, uh, until next Monday just because I, I don't want to tempt fate. Um, I, I think the chances are infinitesimal. But if if Macron should perform very badly in the debate tonight, which I don't think he will because he's a good debater, uh, if uh, Le Pen delivered a, a really first-rate performance tonight, that could change things. But, but the trend in the polls is definitely against uh, Marine Le Pen. Uh, I should say, you, you asked me earlier about the future of the far right. And the fact that such a large percentage, more than a third of the French voted in the first round for extreme right-wing candidates. Uh, the fact that Le Pen's, uh, the margin between Le Pen and Macron will be probably very much smaller this time than it was five years ago. I think it shows that the, the, this um, ideology is here to stay, that it, it has grown. We thought it was finished Five years ago, um, Le Pen was was considered just just dead in the water as as a politician, uh, and yet she came back. And I I suspect that five years from now, or if Macron changes the the term to seven years as he wants to do, uh, we'll be seeing the same thing all over again. And maybe it won't be Marine Le Pen next time, 
but it might be Eric Zemmour, it might be her niece, Marion Maréchal, uh, but the, the extreme right is here to stay as a, as a factor in French politics. You can follow Lara Marlowe's coverage of the French elections in the Irish Times and on irishtimes.com. Lara, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We will be back very soon indeed in your feed, but you can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com with your views or your opinions or indeed your questions. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>